Today's podcast is all about self-storage. I'm so excited. This podcast is really, really good today. We get in not only to self-storage market as a whole, but we go over case studies and walk you through numbers. We get really detailed so you can understand how this industry works and how to make money in self-storage and the potential that is there. And two, it is the underlying practices that go into our investment strategy in self-storage in this podcast. This is the same strategy that we would use in any other real estate asset class. So you can apply this across the board. And this is just a fantastic episode. And it will be one of our many that we'll probably end up doing on self-storage. And so this is probably the first in a series of self-storage podcasts that we go into. But this is very in-depth and I hope everyone likes it. So without any further ado, let's get into it. So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here's the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. I'm so excited about today's episode because we get to talk about one of my favorite things in the whole world, self-storage. Yeah, I'm excited. Self-storage, it's what we do all day long. It's going to be a good one. So I think in this, we want to really give perspective of us operating the facilities and buying it and talk about the industry overall, because I I think there's definite pros. Obviously, it is my preferred asset to invest in and the business we've built up. But there's also, I think, cons too, that a lot of people may not realize when building self-storage, we get a lot of those calls and what all it goes into and operating them and how you get to actually operating and owning a self-storage business. It's never been easier than it is today, but two, I think there's never been as much misinformation mm-hmm. about self-storage. Yeah, no, 100%. I think you should uh, start off and, and tell your history because there's not very many people that own as much self-storage as you, and not only that, own it privately. So yeah. maybe explain what your background is on that. You know, it's interesting too because – Self-storage has changed so much since we got into it. And when we started, because we got started in small facilities. When we started, it was, we bought in our first facility in a really rural town in the middle of nowhere, Idaho, 35,000 square feet. And it was fine. It cash flowed, but we sold it. We actually sold it at a loss. But the economics of a small facility versus uh, 80,000 square foot or 100,000 square foot, are, are they're different. And today, compared to then, because this was pre-2008, and after 2008, a lot of things changed, and that helped us. Technology has played a really big role. So we bought this one facility as more of a way of diversification from our insurance business. We liked it, and I, you know, we went up, and we got to see it. A contracted out with a local person to help run the facility, so they did all the on-site stuff. And when calls came in, and so they acted as a management company, so to speak, nothing like we know management companies or what we do today. Right. And when we decided to really go all in and storage, and one of the reasons was was technology had changed so much there became a really big opportunity to manage a portfolio over a large expanse in a way that couldn't have been done before and that gave us an opportunity that we believed because we weren't in we owned a small self storage facility but we weren't in real estate we just we operated business we worked 
with other businesses and uh, it was mostly personnel, all cash cash flow business. It was not hard assets, real estate. So we focused a lot on operations and maximizing. And that's something we view self-storage was really, really lacking. Because at the end of the day, we thought most people are looking at this like a real estate asset. And we didn't. We looked at this as it was an operating business that as consumers, you have to bring people in. You have to advertise. There's multiple products. And that was a view that was not shared by most people in the self-storage world. And uh, we thought if we bought a self-storage facility from somebody that operated it like a normal real estate asset class, we could come in and we could do revenue management. We could sell multiple products. We could do some pretty advanced marketing and uh, we could really turn that asset around and we could really change it. And we could have a real effect on the revenues of that facility. And uh, that was the underlying theory. And uh, so we went in and we started buying some of these larger facilities. And it was, it's kind of an art, but it really became, we created a model that we could repeat that over and over again. And as we were buying the self storage, we'd learn what didn't work and what did work. And we kind of built a look, a feel and operations and policies to maximize these facilities. And it almost became like a franchise as you know, all our facilities have the same look and all run the same and fill. And we could go and buy these facilities and essentially turn them around, even though the prior owner didn't think they needed to be turned around. He thought it was maximized and 100% occupied, 100% occupied. Exactly. Like, Doing great. Right. And we are drooling saying this is where the opportunity is. Yeah. We would come and buy it and kick out lots of people. We'd implement insurance and all sorts of other lines of revenue. And we'd go into more of a dynamic revenue model like hotels and uh, airlines, things like that use, you know, if you're, if you're on an airline, every seat on that plane is priced different. And uh, self-storage is the same. Demand changes. The guy that's been there for 10 years and the guy that's coming in now and two totally different people in different sizes, the fact that you're pricing these at the same uh, revenue per square foot, it, that's not even logical. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And yet that's how people operate them because it's, I have a rate. So I have a storage facility. Here's my rate. And that's just what the rate is. And you buy it or you don't. And uh, we just fundamentally thought that that was wrong. And, uh, this took time to build this. We made a lot of mistakes, it's, but we did. We came came up after years with a model that was very efficient at maximizing the inefficiencies of people that viewed self-storage as just a normal passive income asset. And if you look at it, I think most people would say that's the downside, right? Like it needs to be actively managed. But for us, that's the upside. That's the business. It's the business. That's how we can make money. Right. If I went to buy an apartment building that has 50 units, well, there's only so much I can do to change yeah. the, the oper- value. The operations that we do are the value add, but it, it never changes. It keeps going up. Exactly. And and But let's go back. Let's roll it back yeah. to talk about how many facilities you have, where they're at, how big they range, and how much square footage that's actually a, a really good question because self-storage varies. As, right. you know, it, one product is not the same. We have over a million square feet in four different states. Our self-storage facilities are everywhere from 65,000 square feet to almost 200,000 square feet. And we've developed 
we acquire, turn around, we've purchased a bankrupt Super Kmart, and we converted that into an all-indoor facility. There's even a road that goes through the middle of it with loading areas, everything like that. And that is essentially a fully automated system. So it, it can be. As in the, the consumer, the tenant, could rent online off their phone, and then they could get into the facility and their car into the facility with their phone, and then they can get into their unit with their phone, never ever needing to speak to another individual. And so they can rent their unit and the life cycle of that tenant could be done completely automated. Now, that doesn't mean that a facility that size is. Obviously, we have three more managers there. Yeah, we have more managers there than any other facility because of the complexity and everything like it. And we have facilities still in rural areas like Pendleton and uh, Pendleton, Oregon. But we like our model works very well in second tier markets that are solid, they're, they're doing good, but they're still operators and that may not be up to the standards of what we fill. I think uh, it'd be good to explain the, the different tiers because, I mean, if anyone looking for an overview on like what self-storage is, this is going to be the podcast. Yeah. And why would we be more hesitant or avoid a first-tier market versus a second-tier market and what the advantages are there? There's different markets and there's different operators in those markets. So first of all, you have the REITs and the REITs, they buy in... What is a REIT? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A real estate investment trust. So a real estate investment trust is a large company. I mean, public storage is 40 plus billion dollars. and publicly traded. Yeah, publicly traded. They own all self-storage. They play in first tier markets and you have extra space, publicly traded. And this is, yeah, you can buy the stock and it pays a dividend. And you get a share of the portfolio of self-storage investments. And they, uh, so like Extra Space is like us. They focus on operations and technology and they turn around facilities. Well, these are huge players. And any normal person, assuming that if they're looking at what a REIT is doing, that they're going to open up a self-storage facility and they're going to perform at the same it's not how it works. This isn't like apartment buildings. You can't build an apartment building and then a REIT, a REIT owns an apartment building and they're getting 225 a unit. And then so you build an apartment building and you could probably get 225 a unit, right? If As long as quality is equal. That's not how self-storage works. So if, if there's a REIT in the market and you're coming up and going against them, you're probably going to have to have lower rates. You're not going to perform as well. And they're going to take a lot of that customer traffic. We didn't want to start out there. We, we knew we weren't able to play in that market. And so we walked away. Now, now we are now in markets with REITs, like, you know, when we went into Reno. When they're coming here too. And they're Boise. coming here. They're now coming to Boise. And it's changing the markets of these second tier markets. And then you have second tier markets, which are like you have Boise, the Treasure Valley, Spokane. You have Oklahoma City. You have Reno, you have Albuquerque, you know, not these big kinds. cities, yes. but definitely not small towns. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then you have third tier markets, which would be more like your hometown regional city, like a, you know, a Twin Falls, something with maybe, yeah. let's say, 60, 80,000 people, right? Yeah. And then you have fourth tier markets that are 12,000. The rule. Yeah, yeah, really rule. And uh, the players that play in those, it, it kind of goes down to what we call in the business mom and pops, dominate third tier and fourth tier markets. And to simplify it, the mom and pops are, they are the ones that own 
a self-storage facility for passive income. People rent it and they get the money. And ger- they're generally the operators. They they're the operators, Let it right? get 100% full. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of the space in which we come in and we close that gap between a third and a first tier with how we operate. Yeah, exactly. explain that. Yeah. Yep, yep. So when we come in, we look at a storage facility to maximize the revenue, to add more value to the consumers. And we get very, very heavy in our marketing strategies because we know that the, the market is segmented up not only in quality of storage facilities, but quality of customers. So let's say that there's three tiers in quality of self-storage facilities. You have REITs, then you have mid-sized players that are 10 plus owners that own 10 plus storage facilities like we do. And then you have the mom and pops, right? Well, now on the customer side, you also have three tiers. So you have the ones that your customers that only care about quality. They're looking for the best quality storage facility. Then the next one below that, they only care about convenience. They're looking for the nearest facility. They don't really care about price, right? And then you have the bottom tier and they are just looking on price. I only care about price, right? So we wanted to compete in the middle tier on quality services, things that we offer and getting in customers as a business. But we wanted to compete on the top or the middle tier that is convenience and quality. So when we build our facility in Boise, Idaho, um, you know, people were coming in and they were like, this, this looks like a Hilton. This doesn't look like a storage facility. And most of the locals, there, there wasn't a storage facility in the city like it. Yeah. Big vaulted ceilings. It was open granite countertop. It was, you had indoor climate controlled wine storage. You had automated doors. I mean, it was really high end. Yeah. No storage facility like that existed in the Treasure Valley at the time. And we had lines waiting for people to come in. And we could charge at the highest rate in the market. And two, we built at one of the lowest costs in the market too. So that was a huge win for us, right? So if we go and are looking for a storage facility to buy, I want to find a storage facility that is focusing purely on the lower customer on price. Because I can buy it, I can put money into it, I can change the quality of the product, and then I can kick everybody out and I can go after the the tenants that we want. I get rid of the lower tenants and get the higher paying ones that focus on quality and convenience. You should talk about how we did that at our uh, Boise location, the difference in revenue change. Just to give an example, because I think people can think, oh yeah, that makes sense. But a tangible example of the value increase, because I think we purchased that. Like, it was like $5 million. Yeah, I think it was lower. I think it was $4 million. It was like 4.9. Yeah, four, uh, that's right. Yeah, you, you're you guys right. 4.9. Right yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep, right there. And then I think it's worth what? Another two or three million over that now? Absolutely. Eight. Yeah. So if you. Maybe. It, uh, probably more than eight. We're probably at about nine now. And so the impact of. And that was in a year. Yeah, in, in under a year. Yeah, under a year. Because we. Four months. I'll months. talk on the maintenance side of things. Yeah. And then you should talk about the rate difference. Yeah. Because this was owned by the state of Idaho. They had owned it and they were getting a lot of flack because there's facilities all around it. And when you don't have to pay taxes on your pro- on your property and you're competing against private business, obviously that seems very messed up. It, 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 one, that's one way of saying it. Yeah. And so they had to auction it off. And we should probably actually do a podcast on how you guys went around buying it because you guys were competing yeah. against huge U-Haul and yep. all these huge companies. Yep. And you guys were the ones that got it because you took the extra step. Actually, we could probably talk about it this podcast. Yeah. yeah. But doing that, plus we come in after and just to talk on the maintenance side of things, we revamped this entire they had an office building up front but it was actually a house 
and we converted it, uh, well, I guess I converted it into a gigantic office. We took out walls. We moved the manager from like a little closet space she was working out of to a, a huge. It's, what, what did she roll around on? Like It was like a piece of wood yeah. that she was rolling around on <laughs> yeah. his chair. And we tore out walls. We revamped everything. And I think it cost about $30,000. We put thirty dollars to $40,000. Revamped it all. People... Which actually helps because when we talk about how much we we hit them with a rate increase, people are angry. Yeah. And they think that you're stealing from them. But then when they see the work being put into it, they can see, oh, this is why I got that rate increase. We go through revamp the lighting. Uh, A lot of cities will have that uh, LED program, which saves you on all the power bills going forward. Obviously, it's like a $10,000 investment. So you're at... You got the tax benefits, though. Yep. You get tax benefit. Mm -hmm. So you're at 40,000 or 40 to 50 there. We go through an asphalt, what do you call it? Reseal. Yep. And then that's another ten thousand. So yeah. cameras, yeah, and cameras are another probably five to ten thousand. So you're at, we probably put about eighty thousand, and we yeah. didn't do fencing just because the perimeter was so long and the fencing wasn't in terrible shape. But looking at all that work put in, we and I believe we budgeted for it, putting in about a hundred thousand dollars into mm-hmm. the property to spruce it up, improve the security features, because the city literally just let this thing sit for ten years. But we, so now you can kind of see we're at about five million dollars in. And, yeah. and their rates, they were 100% full, and their rates are, what was it, like 35% under market? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Was, as far as a revenue per square foot, they were probably 40 cents, something like that, a square foot. Yeah, and we knew this because yes. we owned a facility down the street, which yep, is our Meridian right location, which yep. is the really nice Taj Mahal-looking mm-hmm. building. So we knew the demand and the opportunity, and I guess the main concern was all the competitors because, I mean, you have these gigantic trust-based family companies mm-hmm. and U-Haul and companies like that. So you have to compete against them. So talk about how we hit that rate increase and the impact of that and the value increase. The the important thing to remember about that facility too was, and was understanding the value of it. So why we purchased it. So at at the time we bought it, the market was very, very different. Like Boise right now is so overbuilt. Vacancies are rising and rates are dropping. At the time, it wasn't anything like this. And when we looked at the facility, most people, the state went and got audited, right? Well, the auditor audited the facility as it is. Yep. So, which made it a really low number, substantially lower than it should ever have been. We went and got another audit done. Third party. Third party. That only we got done. We were the only ones in the complete auction that got this done. And we overlaid it with our performance and the audit came back at, you know, once again, it was like eight, nine million. And so four million immediately over than it was even listed for. So we knew because we knew that we could make that performance work and we knew how our model would operate, everything under it, it, it wasn't a risk. You're right. You know, we knew we could come in. So we went to the auction, we picked it up and you should talk about talk about the auction. Like uh, yeah. that guy stormed out and got mad. And yeah. So we had a, some REITs everyone, there. Everyone was there for that property. Right? Yes. That was, I mean, they had a few other properties, but everybody was there for There's the There's like facility. 20 people. And once you hit that audit mark, everybody started dropping off. Yeah. So once they reached the audit, because, and the reason being is. Wasn't it like, what was it? Like 3.2? It was 3.2. Yeah. yeah. And the reason being is people took the audit to the bank. Yep, and got their and got their financing, so they could buy it. So yep. once it reached a certain number, they could no longer buy it because their fa- financing wouldn't allow them. Well, our banks they'd let us buy it to ten million. You because know, because not only matter. did we have the prior history with all the mm-hmm. work we've done, but we yep. also got the third party. We got the third party audit, and we were obviously well capitalized, all that stuff. So we walked in, going, "I'm here to buy a nine million dollar property." Everybody else walked in and said, "I'm here to buy a three point two million dollar property," and at four point nine, we're like, "It's a steal." 
And the other guys, there was one guy that was trying to get it, and it just got too much for him. Whereas if anybody that would have done the work, I think, and really valued that property correctly would have known that that was still a, that, that was a still. And the one guy got upset. He literally turned around and walked out. The one guy we were competing with at the auction and U-Haul didn't make it. And we were surprised we, because we knew it was so cheap. We literally walked into that auction thinking, we're not going to buy this. You're going to have REITs there. They're going to pay six, seven million for this property. And nobody did. And at the end of the day, we found out nobody went and got another audit done. They all accepted the government's audit. Yeah, it was like a, yeah, the Performa. Yeah. Basically just had a, which they they were 100% full. They had their Mm -hmm. rates set. Yeah. And the numbers were based off of that. Yes. Which makes no sense. No sense Why would you ever take their word for it when they didn't do any work on it for the 10 years? The government didn't do anything. The manager there literally just sat and like took checks when people walked in. They were not operating the facility. And so it didn't take a lot for us to come in and we we bought it. And our average rate increase the following month. It was like 65%. 65%. Some people got like an 180% rent. And we lost... 33% 33% of our occupancy, like almost immediately. But we also had a snowstorm. That's right. Which, yeah, people were ticked <laughs> because we right. just hit these people. Everybody, ba- like we say 65%, but there was a lot of small units. Everyone yeah. basically got a 100% rate increase. And there's a snowstorm, so they can't move out. So, yep. And I remember a lot of people were like, you guys plan this? And there's no way that snowstorm no. was the worst snowstorm oh, we've seen in like horrible. 20 years. Horrible. And so no one's moving out and we just hit everybody. And it was a miserable time for that manager, but we oh, also prepared it was her. Miserable. We got her ready and everything like that. And the thing about it was that it's important to know it was miserable everything like that because we were changing the value and it, and we weren't being mean to those customers or anything like that. But those customers that were price based, we took the company over, and it's like Marriott taking over a Motel Six. Right. You can't be mad when all of a sudden the Marriott comes in, spends all this money, makes it awesome, yeah. and then charges 200 bucks a night. You know, yep. And that's essentially what we did. We're like, okay, everybody, this is no longer the asset that you knew, that you were a tenant renting from. Yep. And I'm sorry, but the state should have never owned it this way. The state didn't operate it. They basically said it was illegal for them to do anyways. And so it, it was a bad situation for everybody. Well, not for us, but it was a good situation for us. And then we came in. It wasn't easy though. I no, mean, it was really we can, hard. You can make it sound easy now, but oh, like, it was, that was, uh, I mean, I remember, I mean, I spent what, six to 12 months on oh. that, just like revamping it. And then we had to hire for it. We, I mean. The manager went through hell. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was horrible. And uh, she did so awesome. She yeah, was she managed, so amazing. She managed everybody, every single complaint. And the thing is, is we threw her into that situation because she knew all those people. Those yes. people were her friends because yes. she'd been there for 10 years. And to hit everybody with 65% rate increase, they take their anger out on the on the front-facing yep. person. We don't really see it. No, we don't. And so we're so, the management company on the back end. Our, our yeah. personnel are on the front end. Yeah. And she did awesome. I mean, she told them. She's like, listen, they're going to fix the pavement. They're going to make it more secure. They're going to remodel everything. They're going to come in. So the, you know, the values and, and she backed us. She, she believed in our vision yeah. and, and before all that work, everything to, we promote her. Now she works within the management company and uh, it turned out we purchased that in March. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was March. And by the end of summer, we were 93% full all at the newer rates. So in, but that means we've, we, what, uh, doubled or tripled tripled our, our, revenue. our revenue yeah and so within six months we we could have sold that in six months and netted probably four million off it 
Yeah. And uh, we, that's not what we do. We, we, we keep ours. We, so we, we want to take in the cash flow. Yeah. And that's why we invest in self storage is because of the cash flow. We operate businesses, not passive assets. And so that cash flow comes in and then we can redeploy that cash flow to buy more. But that's a perfect example right there, like you said before, taking an asset, which essentially the state was running it. It's as a mom and pop. It was, yeah. yeah, they just, they weren't running it. And it, like a traditional mom and pop would. And then we came in and brought tremendous value processes, procedures. And then our marketing strategy, it, it, it's really important in, in this situation because two, we know our customers. I know who I want to come in. So those three tiered customers that we talked about before, you have quality, you have convenience, and then you have price. I know that quality will pay double what price will pay, and you'll get almost 80% increase on the per square foot revenue from the convenience. Right. So we knew the value based walking in. That's how come we could do an audit. That's how come we knew the price difference. And once you apply that model, you create instant value and yeah. higher cash flow. I think what would be important is to explain because the okay a lot of people are thinking oh I want to buy a storage facility I want to try I yeah. want to try to do this but they might be one person explain how we silo out each facility into its own entity and how this management company that we're in right now yeah. how we operate because it's a huge advantage to say yeah we lay our performance over this facility and and then boom four million dollars in yeah. equity yeah w- what is the management company how do you guys start yeah. out and build it. It's not like we took this over and this was luck. And we, this asset was years in the making. We would have never purchased this facility three years before. We, we couldn't have. Us, Bitterroot, which is the management company, which owns all the LLCs, which are the assets. Each individual facility is its own company. Those companies are owned by a company above them, which is the holding company. That individual facility for us three years before, didn't have that kind of value. right? And that's a lot of people don't understand. That value is only there if you can create it. We could not have created that value three years prior. We, we just couldn't have. So who are the people? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, not necessarily people, but positions yeah. and what their well, actions are. We, so the companies underneath, which are all storage facilities, we have senior self-storage specialists. Then under them, we have a storage specialist. And then they have their part-timers or full-timers. And those are on the individual companies. And they run all the day-to-day interfacing with customers, everything like that, right? Then above that, we have the management company, which the first layer of the management company consists of three pillars. And the first pillar would be like you have Sarah, and she handles all of our operations, procedures. QA. Um, yes, QA. Then you have Jennifer who handles all, she, she's HR. kind of HR. HR. Yeah, people. She, she's our people. She manages all of our workforce and all the managers and it helps everybody and do all that. They're very, very busy. And then we have you. So then we have Rock and you help us everything on the development, the expansions, the physical assets, anything that happens with them. So, you know, obviously we're building two facilities or we're expanding two facilities now, which we can talk about. Hayden, you can kind of talk about that too, how we've done. But, and you come in and help us do all that and manage the expansion. And that, then on top of that, you have the three officers which that is myself, my father, and my brother. And we're the owners of the company. And we started Bitterroot out, and we started buying it, buying facilities and building it out. Yeah. And um, when we first started, though, it 
that that didn't exist. We first started, we had, you know, one employee, and then me and Sam worked nonstop on trying to build out financial structures and how this would all work. And uh, we hired one person. I said, we got to bring somebody in that can help us build out more like franchise models. And I knew a guy that worked with franchises and we brought him in and we just put sticky notes everywhere. And we were creating operation manuals and policies and procedures. And we had this idea of how this should all work. The first year we took all the, we, we, we tried to implement it all. Half of it worked really well, then the other, not so much. And as we grew, we changed and we molded and we perfected our model and we'd hire people on, which eventually became the management company and then all of the ones below. Yeah. And I think just to discern like uh, Sam, brother-in-law, yeah. he is the CFO accounting and that's the, I think that's an important. And I think if rather than hiring your, your franchise person, if, if you don't have that person, you need to get that numbers person who can create the models and understands the performance improvements that you need to do, because obviously that's going to drive your progress and, and growth. And Sam really literally was that operation person. So when yeah. we first started, me and my dad founded the company. We had this idea. We brought Sam on to help me execute, do everything, right? For years, me and my dad, we, weren't, we didn't even pay ourselves. We just didn't make anything. All the money was dumped back into it. And Sam was the guy. And I mean, he still is. Sam's the man. He like, we brought Sam in and we're like, we really need to make this work. We were still running the benefits company, the insurance company. So we were running two full-time jobs and we had to figure this out and, and really make that work. So all of that work and the years of buying and trying and experiment led up to that point point now. now. So yeah, you're right. It sounds really easy. Oh, we got an audit. And we just overlaid what we knew we could do, and boom, you have instant value. Right. But I think you also just brought up a good point in that people can say, oh, you can do that, but I can't. But you can do that. You just got to start now Mm -hmm. and start to lay that foundation. Just don't get in over your head. And and you also worked at second job, or I guess you'd say your main job the whole time. The whole time. To fund your lifestyle so that you can keep your profits in your business and keep growing your business to hire people under you and hire people that can manage and run the business while you continue yeah, to do work all these two or three things. jobs for years. Yeah. And uh, so did my father. And uh, he, he still does. He still does. Yeah. And so do I. I yeah. still own other companies and run them. That's been a very important part of our success. And it holds very true to the values of the company. And when we look at two starting out, I think you need to remember that when we started out and bought our first small facility, we dipped our toe into it. Right. I didn't go get a bunch of people and say, oh, I'm going to make a ton of money. Everybody give me money. Right. No, we went out and bought a small facility and Just we used our money. Works. We figured out how it works. And that first facility, you know, they weren't that successful. I don't have these amazing success stories. Like oh, I just walked into it and made money. And that's not how it worked. But we figured it out. And every time it got better and better and better, That which then led to a project like Hayden that we would have never taken over right. before, but shows more where we're at today. The first facility we bought, it was like, we got to make sure there nothing needs to be done to this facility, but it's like really ready to go. But then we want to train for customer service. And we had all these ideas that we wanted to do, but there was nothing huge. Like we needed to learn and we needed to do so. Yeah. And that was Pasco. Yeah. And so we bought that, which it was in good shape, but there was clearly a value in the marketplace. So we were really good at underwriting assets and we knew really how to find value and good upside potential. So, and that was, and that was there. So we bought it and it was a great buy and we needed great buys because we didn't know what we didn't know. 
So if, if you buy something that is like razor thin, right, yeah. you know, it, if when, you make a mistake, you're losing money and then that destroys all your momentum and your whole future. We don't want to do that. Right. Well, and, and back, okay. Just to give context to the timeline, obviously the economy is different. You yes. guys bought the majority of your facilities after the recession in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the recession officially ended in 2012, Yeah, I think was our, when we had two consecutive quarters of positive GDP growth, we'd started just before that. We literally caught the upswing. So yeah. to give you an idea, we haven't bought anything in a year. Yeah. But the timing was perfect. The timing was because perfect. The value was there. Yeah. So we could go on a mass buying spree yeah. and that's how it came out. So the idea of Bitterroot and creating this, my my idea that I had that I came and talked to my father, who was my partner and my benefits, everything like that. We've I've always worked. It's always been that way. We work together, which I've loved. It's been great. And I I came and I'm like, listen, there's this play that I think we could do, and we could we could make this. Play. It was a macroeconomic play. It was. It was. There is a weird phenomenon in the marketplace going where value is no longer attributed the way it should be in this asset class, and we know this asset. Right, we have a storage facility. You had a couple small ones. At yeah, that we point. had a couple small ones. We know it, and it, it, they were small. But we could do something with this here. Not only could we do it, I had this weird idea that there was this arbitrage moment in the world, and that meant that theoretically speaking, in economics, you shouldn't be able to take a high risk asset, move it into a low risk asset, and keep cash flows the same. So the safer an asset is. In marketplaces, the lower your returns should be, right? right? Yeah. I said, right now, the world's so upside down, we could move high-risk assets into low-risk assets, keep and we could keep our returns. And we did. It worked. Now, that came with a huge amount of hard work, and there was a lot of opportunity, everything like that. So that was the play and why we got into it. Now, even though the world is different today, my model would still be the same because we didn't start invest. We didn't buy the self-storage facilities with that in mind. That's just when we knew when the time was to ramp up. Right. If I'm going into self-storage, I'm looking, and this is, if, if I'm telling somebody what to do, everybody should do this. If you're wanting to get into self-storage, you find a small facility in a market that is overlooked. It's not being overbuilt. Most, there's so many markets right now. Third are, tier up to second tier. Yes. Yeah. So many markets right now are being so overbuilt. I mean, you have Portland, you have Houston, you have places in Boise. Florida. Boise, Idaho is so overbuilt and you can't fight that. So if you walk into a market and it's overbuilt and you buy right when it's being overbuilt, you're buying at the highest prices and then you get swamped with all that new inventory and all of a sudden you have vacancy, you're cutting rates and your revenue disappears. It's just gone. And then you end up selling to people like me. And we did that after the recession. We bought facilities that didn't make it. Yeah. And so you need to learn before you get in. So go into a place where you can compete. That's really what you look at. Start small and then grow. Because as you grow, you buy your first one, use that cash flow, save up, or turn it around, take the equity, and buy the next one. 1031 it. Yep. So explain a 1031 well, exchange. So you can 1031 exchange it, or you can actually, so I'll explain 1031 Refi exchange. It. Refi. Yeah. So we did this, our, our little asset, we 1031 exchanged into, from a third tier market into a second tier market. We turned that around and then rolled 1031 exchange that into an even bigger asset so in what a second tier the, market. What was the starting amount? Into? The starting amount we put, I think it was 550,000 into it. That's what we actually put. Our family put 550,000 into it. That asset that we've 1031 exchanged, kept doing it up now, is somewhere about 8.5 million with that original investment. Tax-free. Um, yeah, tax-free. 
And uh, so you can 1031 exchange it, or if you're in more of a hurry, you buy it, find an edge that you can make. So look at rate discrepancies. Is there a different rate, right? And then you can buy it, up the rates, maybe do a nicer job, make it look better, value add, value add and increase those cash flows. Now it's worth more. You can go to the bank, refinance it, pull that money out, as long as it's still cash flows, and buy your next one. Yep. Then you go buy your next one. Maybe that's in a better location. Maybe that's a bigger asset. You grow from there. That's how we did it. That's how I would do it again. That's how everyone should do it. If I got into apartment buildings, even though I could go out today and buy a huge apartment building, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go buy a fourplex. Figure out how it works. <laughs> Figure out how yeah. it works. Or partner but, with somebody that's, do, that's or, doing it. Exactly. Or partner with somebody else that can operate it. And that's really important when you're looking at the self-storage market is how are you going to compete? Who are you competing with? And what's the market currently doing? Because I think in self-storage, there's a myth that goes around that says self-storage is recession-proof. I don't think any of the people that we bought our bankrupt assets would agree with that. And it, it really isn't. I mean, lots of people say, well, there was high occupancy. Well, it is, but that's because rates dropped 35%. So you may have had high occupancy, but your revenue crashed. And now it is recession resistant, but the biggest threat to self-storage is ourselves. It's our own operators, right? So when self-storage is very prone to being overbuilt because customers can move out any month, so they can just leave. So if you buy a self-storage facility and then somebody builds a 200,000 square foot facility just down the road from you, they're going to slash rates to get to fill it up. They got to fill that facility up. Now, all of a sudden you're competing with a brand new facility at a lower rate that you're, you're not going to get those customers. Yeah. And, and if they're a REIT or a better operator, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So you need to look at what's happening in the competition, who's coming in. And that's, that's probably your biggest risk in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've gone through uh, quite a bit of the self-storage, like I guess this would be a, a great overview for somebody mm-hmm. looking to learn more about self-storage from somebody who's actually owning a lot of self-storage and, and in it day to day, do you want me to do like a fire round where I just, yeah. just shoot yeah. off questions? And these are off yeah. the top of my head, just from working with AJ and knowing AJ that I th- I'm going to try and make them as valuable to you guys listening so that you guys can take away even more. And I, I think it would be a good idea to silo out other aspects of self-storage and do other podcasts. Yeah, so we need to. It, we'll, it's we'll, a we'll, big it's topic. Yeah. Huge topic. Explain the advantages of having self-storage near each other. Like we have a lot of facilities that are in the same region and we try to actually look for self-storage within the same region. Explain some of the advantages of doing that. There's two things that I think are really important. One of them is your cost controls. So for us, we have self-storage is kind of focused in certain markets and we can share the cost of operations with those four. So I can have one maintenance guy that works at all four of them. Yep. They all share the cost of that instead of one asset bearing the burden of the cost. So there is the benefits of scale on the your expenses. There is also, in some of our other markets, we borderline control market prices. So we have so many facilities there and we're in some of our markets, we have, you know, four facilities. The only other op, there's only one other operator that has owns two facilities in that market. Everybody else is individual operators. So when we raise all our prices, everyone in the market does. Mm -hmm. So we have more control over the market, but not only that, we have more control over, I believe the tenants flow because we're, we have way more advertising that's going out. We can share tenants with each other's assets, which we do. So tenants will leave, go to one, or we'll refer one to the other. So I may be full in one facility, but my other one isn't. So I send them over there. Well, they're not even going out 
to the market to find another customer. Right. They're staying within our realm. So when we capture and acquire a customer through marketing, we can then find somewhere to put him, right? Yep. And he'll never even go out to the market. And that gives us huge advantages in our marketing platform. And two, we can then charge higher also for that um, because then they get the convenience of not having to shop around, not look. We help them through. And so there's a price control portion to it. The better we are at marketing and the more we can do, obviously, the more we can control prices because we can control who we're getting. Yep. What's what, We are converting a lot of our open parking, and we generally do, to uh, units, enclosed units. And we try to avoid actual parking. We don't avoid it, but we definitely look at uh, enclosed units with doors. Explain why we do that. So open parking. And there's a lot of facilities that have only yeah, open parking. Only open parking. So explain the advantage. And there's huge demand. Right, right, right. Everybody wants open parking. But the price, the problem with open parking is there's very little value there. And so um, you can't charge high prices for open parking. Well, in a market like today, if you went out and bought five acres, you need to be able to get enough revenue to justify that purchase. And in open parking at today's prices, that's very hard to do. What's the ratio? So if, if, uh, if I can get a, like just the percentage rate from a 10 by uh, 10 by 20 open parking versus 10 by 20 enclosed, do you know what the rate difference is? I, I, the top I guess head, let, let me use an example region. of a facility we have. So we have a facility where if we had open parking, we could probably get 50 bucks for it, right? And we have enclosed parking and we can charge 250 for that. And we're hundred percent occupied with a waiting list. So once you build in the, even though, yeah, there's a cost to build on the buildings, but it's nothing compared to the revenue that you can get from that. So open parking, it, it, it is really hard to justify and to make work. Now, if you have property because you, you inherited it and you don't have the cost to put into it, yeah, throw up a fence and have open parking because you can charge 50 bucks a slot and you basically have no expense into it. That's pure cash flow. But most people have to acquire and have to start somewhere. And so if you're doing your numbers and if you're looking at a place that has open parking, that can be a fantastic way to do a value add, which we did. We bought a huge facility. Half the facility was open parking. We bought it. We kicked all the open parking out and we turned the whole thing into storage. And you know we, we almost double our revenue from it. Awesome. Do you think it's a better idea to build or buy? That's a great question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Let, let me put it this way. There's risks right now with both. So three years ago, four years ago, there was no reason to build because you could acquire under replacement cost. Now, even though right now prices are really high, you can build cheaper than you can buy, but that doesn't mean you should. Building, we're at the top of a cycle. So we are, self-storage is overbuilt in most markets and some are extremely overbuilt. If you're building, that's the highest prices that building costs for self-storage have ever been because of trade war or everything else like that that's going on, steel, the metal, it's, it's astronomical. And if you're building at those high prices and you have no customers in there, and all of a sudden we're at an overbuilt market, so there's mass vacancies, you may not be able to fill up. And that is, that's a high-risk proposal. Now, if you're in a market where nobody's building, everybody's at full, I would build over acquire. But in most markets, I'm going to do a value-add strategy. 
um, because the value add strategy at the top of a market is my only play because it's my MOS, my margin of safety. So Warren Buffett talks about having a margin of safety. So even if I'm wrong, even if I'm dumb, it'll still work out. That's how I look at self-storage. So I want to buy it. People are looking at 8%, 9%, 10% cash on cash returns as a good investment. That that to me is risky now. I, I look for 20 plus percent cash on cash returns. And I understand that I have to build that out. I have to make the value for it. But if I can have that, that creates a huge margin where if the market does tank for me, I'm protected, right? I can have my returns can go down and I'm okay. I don't want to be in a spot where if we're overbuilt and returns drop, I'm in trouble. Um, I don't, it's just not worth it to put myself in that position. So you got to be really careful right now, buying versus building. If you're going into a third tier market and buying and want to do a, a smaller self storage, I would almost always buy. And I guess last question for this because we're, we're closing in on an hour here. Yeah. What uh, What's the biggest mistake that you see either new people or current people in the storage industry doing? Right now, we see very smart people that are doing extremely dumb things, and you find it almost immediately. You'll be with someone that's building a 200,000 square foot facility. They got all these investors to give them money because the asset is recession proof. And you look at it and their cost of build is 83 bucks to a hundred plus bucks a square foot. And you're like three years ago, I acquired a same asset for 36 bucks a square foot right next to you. They have 200,000 square feet. That means that their revenue that they have to charge to just cover their debt and we're the price leaders, we see some of these numbers and they don't even make sense. Mm-hmm. We're seeing speculation. And if you're building in hopes to make it, or if you're building because in five years it'll be okay, that's by far the biggest mistake we see is they're, they're building for future. It may not work out. It may not be good now, but I'm sure in five years, because we're going to get 3% rate increases, all these things they assume are going to happen, which probably won't. So the assumptions of the future Obviously, that's huge. And then just flat not understanding the market or the business. So many people get into self-storage, once again, believing it's a real estate asset. If you build a real estate asset in self-storage and the REITs or us move next to you, they're going to eat your lunch because um, they're not. They're running a business. And so if you're buying a self-storage or you're getting in self-storage, be prepared to run a business and compete. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we just provided a gigantic overview of what self-storage is and how it operates. And I think it would be a good idea to come up with more of a series on the Cashflow Freedom website to kind of give people more idea on the marketing, the development, the expansions, all, all the stuff that goes into it. I agree. And and that, and we will. We'll come out with some other topics, things like that, that we can spend good time diving deep in. And we could probably use some live examples that we're going through right now. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.